aside from It's a Wonderful Life, the, the best Christmas movie is A Charlie Brown Christmas. And that's objective, it's scientific, it's fact. Uh, there, there are many reasons why I love this movie so much. One is, of course, the soundtrack. The Vince Guaraldi trio Charlie Brown Christmas soundtrack is in the running for the best soundtracks of all time. Not just Christmas movies, but all movies. I mean, it just hits different, man. You turn that thing on the first Sunday after Thanksgiving, and it is so magical. It's gr- the movie's great because not only the soundtrack, but when else do you get to like turn on TV on network television and hear a sweet voice like Linus just straight up reading from the Gospel of Luke and telling the story of the birth of Jesus Christ and the Gospel. It's, I also love this movie because I think I resonate uh, to some degree with the sort of melancholy spirit of the movie. You know, it starts out, and Charlie's depressed, he's down, he's sad, and he's not quite sure why. He knows that there must be something more to Christmas than all the commercialized stuff that he's witnessing, that underneath all of it, there must be some real true meaning of Christmas, but he can't quite find it, and so he just feels sort of down and melancholy. And his, his friend, friend Lucy, uh, who's not so concerned, reassures him, and she, she just encourages him to sort of swallow this cynicism wholesale. She says, look, Charlie... Let's face it, we all know that Christmas is a big commercial racket. It's run by a big Eastern syndicate, you know. Lucy's cynicism about Christmas, I think, captures well the, the cynical spirit of our age. In our day, we're, we're cynical about so much stuff. We're cynical about politics, and for good reason. Count me at the, at the top of the list of cynicism about politics. All our favorite TV shows, you know, the... the the greatest millennial TV show, The Office, is, is purely cynical. I mean, it's funny and it's sweet, but it's just making fun of the meaninglessness of the workaday life. It's, it's pure cynicism. All of our favorite TV shows, our sense of humor is cynical. Think about how we joke with one another. Right? We're cynical, even to some degree, about religion. And again, not for no reason. We've been, we're in this season, aren't we, where we just look for misogyny and racism under every religious stone, where we assume that every church leader, every ministry leader is probably living in some sort of horrible secret sin, and we have good reason to fear this, because we see it happen over and over and over again. We all seem to be operating with cynicism as this sort of self-protection mechanism that if I can just head off the risk of getting hurt by playing up the meaninglessness of life, and the impossibility of real, true, lasting joy, maybe I won't get hurt so badly. This morning in our, our Advent series, which we're calling God Comes to Us, we're going to see that God comes to the cynical. He comes to us in our cynicism. Last week, we saw that he comes to bless. He comes to this person, Abram, changes his name to Abraham. <coughs> and he comes not to take from Abraham, not to not to gain himself from Abraham, but to give to Abraham out of the overflow and abundance of his love. He comes to bless him. And this week, we're going to see how God comes to Abraham's wife, cynical Sarah, in Genesis chapter 18. Turn there with me, Genesis chapter 18, and I'll read verses 1 through 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. He looked up and he saw three men standing near him. And when he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them, bowed to the ground and said, My Lord, if I found favor with you, please do not go on past your servant. 
Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I'll bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you've passed your servant's way. Later you can continue on. Yes, they replied, do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent and said to Sarah, quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Abraham ran to the herd and got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk as well as the calf that he had prepared and set them before the men and he served them as they ate under the tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he answered. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? But the Lord asked Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time I will come back to you, and in about a year she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh, she said, because she was afraid. But he replied, no, you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. What kind of host are you? In general, I find that there's, there's two kinds of, well, maybe three kinds of hosts. I guess there's an anti-host. There's a person who just says, stay out of my house. I don't want people to come over. But then there's two kinds of hosts. They're the people who who are you know, welcoming, they are warm, they want anybody to come in, and they just say, listen, what you see is what you get. This is my life, this is my world, I'm not going to clean up particularly for you, like my house is your house, but this, what you see is what you get. And then there are people uh, who will get ready for days and days on end, right? They spend days cooking, days cleaning to prepare, because they want to give people a warm and comfortable and, and just wonderful environment to come into. Both kinds of hosts are, are just fine. Hospitality comes in different forms. And in Genesis 18, Abraham shows remarkable hospitality. So much so that we might be forgiven for thinking that he knows who his guests are. We might be forgiven for thinking that he has the narrator's eye view, which says in chapter 18, verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham. But as we'll see, Abraham doesn't know yet. Uh, we're going we're gonna to see this as we go on, but some people even think that Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, which says uh, that, that show hospitality to everybody because by doing so, some have, some have hosted, some have entertained angels without being aware of it. Some people think that's actually a commentary uh, on this story. And as we go on, what we're going to see is that he's just showing the kind of hospitality that would be hoped for, if not even expected, in a sort of ancient Bedouin culture. Bread, steaks, cheese curds. He says, let's, let's have this delicious meal in the shade under the tree. And as he prepares all this stuff, gets all this stuff ready, as often happens in scripture, it's in the breaking of the bread, it's in the eating, it's in the meal that his eyes are open to see who it is that he's eating with. Mamre, the oaks of Mamre. Uh, some people, we're not totally sure what that word means, what its etymology is, but at least in the early church, a lot of people thought that it was connected to this word that meant sight or vision. As if to say that Abraham is sitting under the oaks of vision. He's sitting under the tree of sight. And as he welcomes these visitors under the tree of vision and feeds them a meal, his eyes are opened and he sees the identity of his visitors. Verse 9, they ask, where's Sarah? Now, it's certainly possible that he's told them that his wife's name is Sarah or that they even met her while she was cooking. But I like to imagine that in this scene, you know, he, they, he, they haven't met Sarah yet. They're just sitting with Abraham and it's that moment where they say, where's your wife, Sarah? And he's thinking, wait, did I, did I tell them my wife's name was Sarah? 
how do they know my wife's name is Sarah? And he says, well, she's in the tent. And verse 10, it says, the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son. Now, a couple things here that, that make this sort of the moment of revelation. First, verse 9 says, they said. But verse 10 says, the Lord said. As if the author is trying to make the point that it was in this question that Abraham realized that the people he was talking to were no mere human visitors. The Lord said, and what did he say? He said, I'm going to come back in a year's time, and Sarah's going to have a baby. Now remember, last week we saw that God has given this promise to Abraham, and he's given it to him over and over and over again. But here come these random wanderers in the desert, and they somehow know about the promise that the Lord had made to Abraham. It's possible even that Abraham wouldn't have told that many people about this promise. Again, we pointed this out last week. It would be a little awkward and maybe a little embarrassing to go around telling everybody, I'm almost 100 years old, but God's going to give me a child. My wife's almost 90 years old, but God's going to give us a child. So certainly not many people knew about this promise. And in the question, in the comment, your wife's going to have a baby in a year's time. Abraham goes, oh my goodness, I realize this is the Lord that I'm talking to. And in the revelation of the visitor's identity comes also the revelation of his audience. God is not coming here. He's not appearing here to talk to Abraham. He's appearing here with a message for Sarah. He's already come to Abraham multiple times, but here he comes to give a message to Sarah. And Tim Keller points out in a sermon on this chapter, notice how different is God's appearance to Sarah versus God's appearance to Abraham. You remember when God appears to Abraham? We saw it last week, chapter 15. He comes to him, and there's this deep, overwhelming darkness that overcomes Abraham. He has to cut all these animals in half. There's all this blood and gore and guts, and it's dark, and there's fire. There's a smoking pot and a flaming torch. It's like fire and guts and blood and darkness. It's terrifying. It's an overwhelming vision. And now, God comes to Sarah in the heat of the day. The sun is at its highest point. It's, it's siesta time. It's nap time. They're just hanging out. He doesn't even speak to her directly. Right? There's a tent between them. He just, he just sort of lets her overhear. He's gentle. He's gracious. He's almost even indirect in a sense. And the point from this is not some sort of gender stereotype that God comes to men really aggressively and to women really gently. The point is that God does not come to all people in the same way. That your experience, your encounter with God might be different than mine. Any good coach, any good parent, any good teacher knows that, that not all students, not all players, not all kids need to be treated, taught, coached, parented in exactly the same way. So if you've, I don't know if, if you played sports, you know that a, a good coach realizes that some people just every now and then you have to tear into them to motivate them, right? You got to get in their face. You got to get after them a little bit. But other players, if you do that to them, it'll crush them. You'll lose them, right? They're done for the rest of the season if you do that. God knows the same thing. We have a tendency to think that he needs to come to all of us in the same way, and so we try to force our experiences with God onto other people. Now, to be clear, yes, he comes to all people through Christ, comes to all people in the Holy Spirit. He speaks through the Word. He speaks through prayer. He speaks in the church. But beyond these things, the the similarities pretty much stop. And different people have their own unique experiences. Different, you know, there's, there's different kinds of churches, not every, you may, you may get the sense because we've been really intentional about you know, starting this church and how we do our services and things like that, that we think this is the only way to have church. 
But there's different kinds of churches that connect with different personalities and different cultures across the world, and that's a good thing. Every church shouldn't look like King's Cross. Uh, There's different books, different authors, different people have different kinds of encounters with nature, with their experiences, with suffering, with family, friends, art, different preachers, different spiritual disciplines. It looks different for different people. God knows what each and every one of us needs. He's numbered the hairs on our head. Of course he knows what each and every one of us needs. And not only that, but it's also worth noting that he doesn't always come to the same person in the same way twice. If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you know that you can't get into Narnia the same way twice, right? Once it's through a wardrobe, another time it's at a train station. And it's kind of like that in our experiences with God. I, I uh, remember when I was a senior in high school, somebody who was discipling me gave me a book to read. And it was the most incredible, life-changing book. It changed my view of God. It changed my view of myself. It changed my view, my view of my life. And for a long time, I said, this is one of my you know, two or three favorite books. And seven or eight years later, I was leading a, a small group, and I led them through the book. And it was my second time reading it, and I just thought, this book isn't particularly helpful to me anymore. <laughs> it's not that it's a bad book. It just, it's not really doing anything for me this time. But that doesn't mean it wasn't wonderful the first time. It was exactly what I needed. And you may have been through this, where you've gone through a season of spiritual growth, and it's been because of a particular spiritual discipline or practice, and so later you're dry, and so you try to go back to the well of that same thing, and it's just not, it's not doing it for you. And if nothing else, this tells us that, that the initiative is on God, that God has to be the one to come to us, and he does so in his own timing and in his own way. And here we see he comes to Sarah so differently than he comes to Abraham. Now, how does Sarah respond when he comes to her? She laughs. She scoffs at God. She she even mocks him in her laughter. She's cynical. She doesn't believe him. She says, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? Notice, this is very interesting. What does she say to herself? Will I have delight? Um, You probably think, as I I have, that what she's saying is, "Will will I have the delight? Will I have the pleasure of getting pregnant, of having a child? Will I have this unique joy in my old age and in my husband's old age? But that's not actually what the word means. Interestingly, the word is referring to sexual pleasure or delight. She's not asking, will I in my old age have a child? She's asking, am I going to sleep with Abraham again? Now, this is really interesting. Why would she say that? Why would the text record that? Because their marriage was no good. Think, Think about two things. One, the culture, okay? They live in this ancient culture where a woman's worth was found in being able to give her husband children. Her value was tied up in, can I produce a son for my husband to carry on the family name, to take care of us when we get old? And she's 90 years old, and they've never had a child. And so she feels worthless. And it's certainly the case, I'm sure, that Abraham is projecting some of that onto her. He's probably terribly disappointed with her. You know, they, didn't, they didn't know what we know now, so he, he, he's blaming her. He thinks it's her fault somehow that she hasn't been able to, child, to have a child. And then in the other direction, what did we see that Abraham did to Sarah last week? We saw twice, every time that trouble comes around, he throws her under the bus. He gives her to the harem of two different kings in chapter 12 and 17 to save his own skin. So she's probably not particularly happy with him. Right? She's bitter and resentful toward him. He's ashamed of her. Their marriage is freezing cold. And it's in this context that she says, 
have a child, I'm not even willing to do my part to have a child. I'm not even interested in this marriage anymore. But what does God do? He reaffirms the promise. He says, why did you laugh? You laughed. She says, did not. He says, did too. And then he asks, in verse 14, a more literal translation, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And he says, I'm going to come back in a year, and Sarah will have a child. God is essentially giving Sarah a timeline. He's essentially saying to her, you got three months, Sarah. Are you going to have faith? Are you going to risk getting hurt? Are you going to open yourself back up in this marriage relationship? Are you going to risk the possibility of not getting pregnant? And then what happens? Are you going to have faith? You've got three months. John Calvin said, He who does not expect more from God than he is able to understand by his own reasoning commits a grave sin. He who does not expect more from God than he is able to understand by his own reasoning commits a grave sin. God can do wonderful things in your life. He can do amazing things in your life, more than you could ever imagine. Paul tells us in Ephesians, God can do abundantly more than we even hope or dream or ask for. But what does this story tell us? It tells us that he won't do them without changing you in the process. That what he's after is not your situation in life, it's not your job, it's not your vocation primarily, it's you and your heart. And he's going to bless Abraham and Sarah with this child, but he's not going to do it without healing their marriage first. He's not going to do it without softening Sarah's cynical heart. Look, we see God's grace here in that he comes to the cynical. It reminds me, the story reminds me of Jesus and Thomas, or doubting Thomas as we call him, right? So Jesus has died, he's been resurrected on the third day, and some of his disciples have seen him, and they go back and they tell Thomas. And Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it until I can touch him with my own hands until I can put my hands in his, the nail holes in his wrists and in the, 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 the wound that was pierced into his side. And so one day, the disciples are eating a meal and they're in a room and it, it, the, the house is locked. And then all of a sudden, Jesus is just inside of the locked house. And he says, hey, Thomas. He says, here's my wounds. Do you, wanna, you need to touch anything you know, to check things out? And Thomas just falls on his face and he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus and God, the Father here, come to the cynical, and he will come to you in your cynicism, but he won't leave you cynical. He loves you too much. He wants to move you from cynicism to faith, and that takes action on your part. That takes a response. It takes obedience. God's not going to change your life without changing you in the process, and for Sarah, that looked like the very practical, earthly, human thing of sleeping with her husband. What might it look like for you? Does it look like apologizing to somebody? It's a broken relationship, and maybe you think they've wronged you more than you've wronged them, but maybe you need to pick up the phone and call them and say, I'm sorry. I know that I haven't been loving to you, and here's the ways that I need to apologize. Does it look like forgiving somebody? Somebody you've harbored resentment and, and bitterness against, and you just need to call them, or maybe not even call them, just in your heart with the Lord, you need to let go of it. And forgive somebody and take the risk of being hurt again. Maybe it looks like praying again. Maybe you've just gotten so tired of praying for the same thing over and over again that you've just quit. And God's saying, would, would you come talk to me again? Maybe it looks like sharing the gospel with somebody. Maybe it looks like joining a church. Maybe it, for, the, for the first and maybe only time ever, I'm going to address for a moment anybody who might be listening to this who's not in the room. Maybe it looks like going to church again. 
Maybe it looks like calling a family or friend. It looks like in some way risking getting hurt. And by the way, there's, there's different ways to be cynical. Um, there's, a, there's Sarah's cynicism, which is a sort of external, outward, obvious cynicism, right? I'm saying it out loud. But there's a kind of internal, secret, almost religious cynicism too, isn't there? Where we actually go through all the religious motions, but we don't actually really believe any of it in our hearts. We're, we're acting like Christians, but we're feeling like atheists. My guess is there may be some of us like this in the room today, and I can certainly be like this. You, you, you're still praying because you know you're supposed to because you're a Christian, but you're praying without expecting anything to happen. There's no expectation that God would ever actually answer your prayers. You're coming to church, and you have no expectation that God could actually change you through what you experience there, or that he would ever actually change anybody else. There's just, you, you go through the motions with no expectation whatsoever that you might ever live to see God do something wonderful. And he's saying, is anything too wonderful for me? I, I prayed for this this morning, <coughs> but we can, we can go about life and we can live in a place like East Nashville, 60,000 people and, and a, probably a couple thousand go to church on a typical Sunday. And, and we could just think, this is the way this is always going to be. And we have no expectation that there might be a day when, when the seven or eight or ten healthy gospel-believing churches in this part of our city are so bursting at the seams with people because God's Spirit is actually like descending upon this part of the city and waking people up and bringing them to new life. And we're like planting churches and sending people out left and right. Do we actually believe that that could happen? One of my, you'll hear more about this in, in January, but one of my hopes for our church in the year to come is that we would pray together like we believe that that sort of thing could actually happen and that God would actually answer our prayers. He who does not expect more from God than he's able to understand by his own reasoning commits a grave sin. Now, Mary, the mother of Christ, is sort of the anti-Sarah. Sarah says, you know, yeah, right, not going to happen. I'm not going to do that again. Mary just says, I'm your servant. May it be done to me as you've said. <laughs> the most, just the holiest response, right? And Sarah will eventually have Isaac, the child of the promise, but Mary will have Jesus, the true child of the promise, the child of all the promises. And God's word says that all of God's promises find their yes, their fulfillment in Christ. But the, the beauty of God's grace is that God doesn't just skip over the Sarahs to get to the Marys. He doesn't just bypass the cynical people and say, I'm going to go find the people with easy belief, the people with easy faith. He comes to the cynical and the believing alike, but he loves us too much to let us stay cynical. And in Sarah's case, we see the fruit of that in two ways. One, in Hebrews 11, verse 11, we read, by faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive, even though she was past the age since she considered that the one who had promised was, was faithful. Is that Sarah's posture in Genesis 18? No. This encounter changes her. She goes from scoffing at God, not believing his promises, to apparently having faith and believing that the one who promised her was faithful and could do what he said. God's coming to her in her cynicism changes her. And then the second evidence that she's changed, just flip over with me to Genesis 21. Verses 1 through 7. The Lord came to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. And Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. 
And Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She also said, who would have told Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne a son for him in his old age? The scoffer's laugh of Genesis 18 turns into the laugh of joy in Genesis 21. She laughs at God's promises, right? Mocks God's promise in Genesis 18. In Genesis 21, she's laughing with joy, and they name their son Isaac, which means he laughs. The scoffer's laugh turns into the laugh of joy. One of my favorite books this is the Brothers Karamazov. You've probably heard me talk about it before. Uh, toward the end of the book, there's this, this preteen, precocious boy named Kolya. And Kolya, he's like 13 years old, but he's, a, he's an avowed atheist and nihilist and materialist and socialist. And he's like read enough of a dictionary and an encyclopedia to know all these big words so that all of his preteen peers think he's really, really smart. And the adults can see through it a little bit, right? And he sort of walks around town with his chest puffed out. But he has a good friend another boy his age, who is deathly ill. And you, you get the sense as you read on that this kid's not, he's not going to make it. And this group of friends are, are sort of walking together as their friend is dying. And Alyosha, the book's main character, the sort of paragon of hope and virtue and goodness and joy and love, is, he's in his 20s. He's walking through with these boys through the process of them grieving their friend's death. And, and Kolya, this cynical kid, is changed walking through grief with this character who has hope and who has joy and who has faith. In the last scene of the book, the, the friend has died and they're at the graveside and Kolya, the cynical, materialist, I don't believe in God 13-year-old, says, Karamazov, that's Alyosha's last name, says, Karamazov, can it really be true, as religion says, that we shall all rise from the dead and come to life and see one another again? Certainly we shall rise. Certainly we shall see and gladly, joyfully tell one another all that has been, Alyosha replied. Ah, Kolya says, how good that will be. This is the story arc of every Christian. It's the story arc of Sarah. It goes from the scoffer's laugh to the laugh of joy. At some point, at some point we have to become cynical. In fact, I would suggest if you've never been cynical, if you've never been cynical about yourself, you're probably not a Christian yet. Uh, becoming a Christian requires that you become cynical about yourself and scoff at yourself, that you get the right sense of yourself so that you could laugh with Sarah and say, God love me? God use me? What, what have I ever done? What have I ever done for God? I've never, I don't give him the time of day. I'm, I'm selfish. I'm self-centered. I'm, I'm self-interested. I'm not particularly kind to other people. Right, I, I don't think about God, I just think about my own life. Why would God ever love me? Why would God ever use me? That's too good to be true. But then we see, we get vision, like Abraham, right, sitting under the tree of vision. We see Christ on a different tree of vision. We see Christ on the cross. And on, on seeing Christ on the cross, we learn two things. First, we learn that all of our worst thoughts about ourselves in our cynicism, are true. And it's actually much worse than that. <laughs> We're far more sinful than we could ever imagine. We're far more sinful than we could ever dare to admit. But the second thing we learn is that even still, we're more loved than we could ever dare to hope or dream. Because the cross says, 
This is what was required to save you. And the cross says, I am more than willing to do it for you. And God spared absolutely no expense because he loves us so much to bring us back to himself. And then we laugh and we say, are you kidding me? (laughs) Can you believe it? That God loves me that much? That even in my sin, he would do that for little old me? That God loves me? He proved it on the cross? This is amazing. And the best thing is that anybody can get in on it. Anybody who becomes cynical about themselves and yet looks to the cross and sees God's love for them can get in on it. Listen, I just want to encourage you, if you're, if you're here this morning and that, that hasn't happened to you yet, uh, talk to us. I'd love to talk to you about what that means, what it, what it means to look to Christ on the cross and understand both the depths of your sin and the infinite depths of God's love for you. Um, I'm around, and so are lots of other people, so grab us and let's talk and pray.